In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. The last, um, the last weeks of the Coptic year, the Church circles back and, and focuses on things that we don't tend to talk much about during the regular seasons. So, if you pay attention to Church hymns, Church colors, Church everything. The church is following through different cycles and seasons that's supposed to carry us even with mood of the different things that we're going through. But the end of the year is one of the few times where we focus on the end because the natural year is ending. In In the Mediterranean, Middle Eastern world, everybody's new year actually used to be September. So everybody understood that this was the end of the year. And the church focuses on two kinds of messages about the end. One is the end of the world, which I think people are embarrassed to talk about these days, wrongly. Um, it used to be actually a major emphasis in the church during catechism. But also our individual, personal end, um, which I think I want to meditate together on a little bit today. Because I think we don't... We don't think much about death and we think that it's morbid too. And so the only times we end up confronting anything having anything to do with death is usually at funerals. And then you're very limited with what you can say because it's not usually the appropriate time to meditate on, on our general death together. But death is like everybody's personal day of the Lord if we want to use the the terminology of the Old Testament that we read a lot during Holy Week, right? It's your day of of reckoning. It's like the day your exam results come out or getting your board results. It's like the NBA finals, whatever analogy works for you. It's that thing you've been working towards for a very long time, theoretically. You either have or you haven't. And suddenly that day just comes. Right, And it's the time to know that whether what you're practicing is worth it or not. It's very easy to have thoughts about that future day, but it's completely different to do anything about it. Right, And that's why it's, it's a subtle day. And that's why the Lord uses these parables of, of how it comes suddenly because before you know it, it's there. But most of us, avoid talking about death as much as we can. Um, And like I said, we get maybe a little bit emotional at a funeral, and that becomes an emotional thing, and then within a week, everyone is normal again. But death is our challenge to life. It asks not only how we live, but even more than that, it asks why you are living. Right? That forceful day forces that question to the front. If you never studied for boards, just to use example, well, when the day comes, what do you, what do, you do? Right? Suddenly that day is forced to ask, what was, I, what, was I, what was I doing? But again, the bigger question is, what are you living for? What, what, are the, what is the reason that drives your decisions, because that's the thing that goes forward. If you're living for your family, with all respect, your family will die. That's a guarantee. 
The one guarantee in life is that every single one of us is going to die. If you're living for a career, you can and will lose it at some point, either because you died or you retired or because it was taken from you. If you're living for your body, you will lose that. If you're losing for your, living for your money, you can lose that. If you're living for your looks, you can lose that. Whatever it is, if there's anything that you're living for, if what's driving your decisions is made out of material, it dies. Period. Material dies. Right? It was actually this meditation that led Augustine from atheism to Christianity, actually. That's something that, that was very interesting to me when I was reading his autobiography. It wasn't people's piety, it wasn't how nice people were, it wasn't even their virtue or their morals. It was his sudden realization of saying, everything perishes, is there anything that doesn't? Because if there's something that doesn't, it's the only good thing. It's the only thing worth living for. But then that becomes the question of, so how do my actions reflect on that reality? Because death is a reality. If death was a theory, Right? Then it would be different. It would be like, well, I don't know if I believe in that. But you can be sure you're going to die. You've seen it over and over and over and over. You've seen it in your plants. You've seen it in people. You've seen it everywhere. And the gift that God gives is this victory over death for those who wish to live for that meaning. If we believe in that, if we live in that, if we participate in that, then do my choices match that desire? Does the choices that I make match that reality or do I live like that's not real? Because then, like the thief in the night, that day comes upon us where we will be afraid. And if we haven't been living that way, I don't usually like to talk this way during the year. I usually like to talk about the positive and the good and the working on virtue, but the church calls us this time to meditate with a little more gravity. There are things we should worry about. Um, we'll meditate together on just on a, on a few things, just to think about. Of saying, you know what, this is the end of the new, end of the year. Things I should think about for the new year. That if I were to die today, that God takes very seriously. The first is judging. This is one of the things that if you were to be standing before the just judge, that God takes very, very, very seriously. I won't spend the longest on this because I know I talk about this issue a lot. But to judge is to throw yourself in the throne of God. It's to say you've skipped all the way to the end, died, now you're sitting on the throne and you're saying, I have decided whether this person is a good person or not. I've decided the conduct of this person, whether they are good people or bad people, whether they are worthy of mercy or not worthy of mercy. There's a story I like to repeat from Abu Dorothea of Gaza about this, this monk who, who was judging. And after he judged this, this monk, the monk died. And an angel brought the soul of the person who died to this monk and said, tell me, monk, where should God send him? Right? Of course, the monk was taken aback. And he's like, since, since you think you know everything and you know how to judge, tell, tell him, where does the soul go? Does it go to heaven? Does it go to hell? What do you think? Right? It was this wake-up call. Like they saying, who do you think you are? Right? Who do you think you are to, to know the situation? But judgment, the Lord said, blessed are those who show mercy, that show mercy unto them. Judge not, lest you be judged. Right? That's why there's another beautiful story from the Desert Fathers that is more comforting 
where there's this monk who on his deathbed, the monks gathered around him to say goodbye to him, and he was smiling and happy, like, Abba, are you afraid? And he's like, no. Um, and so they thought he had lost it near the end, like, he should be afraid, it's, it's the moment. And he's like, I'm going to heaven. And like, Abuna Bikharraf. Um, he's lost it in his last days, like, Abuna Limanefsek, like, you're about to die. And he goes, I'm not afraid. Christ promised, judge not, and you'll not be judged. I've made a point in my life to never judge a man. I'm not afraid of judgment. So there's, this judgment can be the key to your life and your death when you stand there. Second to be fearful of if you were to leave today is lack of mercy. And this is connected to but not the same as judging. Here's where you might know someone might have done something terrible but you give that person compassion or kindness or forgiveness instead. And this is especially true, this mercy that we should be showing, this is especially true of those that you don't think deserve it. It's not really merciful when you think somebody's already right. right? That's not, that's not an act of, of mercy. It's a merciful when a person in the wrong is the one that is receiving this grace. You know someone lied about you. Instead of exposing, you forgive them, you show them mercy. Right? Or saying, I'll cover them. You know someone slandered you, not taking it as a point to expose them or prove that they're lying or tell them even that you know what they've done. You notice that someone is unappreciative of you, your spouse, your child, your co-worker. And you have the power to put them in their place, so to speak, and you don't. These are acts of mercy. You know someone's exaggerating a story. Instead of mocking them or exposing them or making them feel embarrassed in front of people, you stay silent. All of us, every single one of us, myself included, have secret sins and public sins. Every single one of us. We all have things that we do wrong that everybody sees, and we all have many things we do wrong that thank God for His mercy that nobody sees. This is actually what we mean when we say in the prayer of thanksgiving, for you have covered us, right? You didn't expose us. You kept our secrets from everybody. We hope for the mercy of others and of God to cover us. Do we offer that to others? Or are we the people who are so excited to point out when someone's messed up, when somebody didn't act the way that they expected, and like, aha, that's a servant, and they did that. That's an abuna, and they did that. That's a so-and-so, that's, and we start zooming in on how bad they are because of who they are, as though we ourselves are not doing all of the same things. The thief on the right was not owed anything, and God had mercy on him. Right? There was, there was nothing that the thief did that, that proved his worth of mercy, right? And yet God had mercy. This is who we're supposed to be exactly like our God. The people who shouted crucify him were definitely not in a position of praise. They were shouting, spitting, calling for his death, and the Lord not only had mercy, what he was doing was already mercy on them, he even defended them. Right? He even, while they were doing the wrong, defended them and said, they don't get it, they don't understand, forgive them. 
right? He was even interceding for their mercy as they did that. There are stories of so many monks and nuns who are wrongly accused and took it silently. Take that as examples for yourselves. The great Saint Macarius, um, not as great as Saint Anthony, but great nonetheless. Um, the story of him that's mind-blowing, I think, to, that should be mind-blowing to all of us, is that story of this girl who fell into a warfare with a guy, and the two of them had got, they got her pregnant. And obviously, culturally, and in every way, religiously, that was unacceptable. And so the girl was so embarrassed. So what did the girl say? She didn't want the guy, they, if they find out who the guy is, they're going to kill him. So she says it was a buna. Right? So Macarius was a priest. People forget that he was already a priest, a married priest. Right? So it wasn't just, oh, the celibate. This is a married man that they're accusing and said, he got her pregnant. He did not open his mouth. Right? Instead, he said, well, work, Macarius. You have a child to feed. And started taking a side job. And took the ridicule of the people at church of like, Right? That's a priest. Right? Who can you trust these days? Right? And all that kind of, of, of narrative. Right? He did not open his mouth. He showed mercy. He knew that for this girl, it meant her death. He's like, I can take it. I know who my God is. But his act of mercy saved her and saved him. Right? At her pregnancy, she ended up having a rough delivery. And so she ended up admitting, by the way, I lied. It wasn't Macarius. When they all came praising Macarius, what did they find? Macarius ran. He wasn't looking for the praise. Macarius ran and he became one of the greatest monks that the Coptic Orthodox Church, the, the whole world actually, has, has ever seen. Or the story of St. Marina, the same thing, Marina the Aesthetic, right, where they accused her of fathering a child, having no idea that she's a lady, right? And they accused her of being the man. They didn't know until they were burying her that she was a she. Right? But the decades of abuse, right, of ridicule that she took, why? She was having mercy on the person who actually messed up. Right? This is the power of mercy. A person like this is not afraid of their death. Right? A person who, who cares to cover others is not going to be afraid. Because we live in an age, I think, where we show no mercy. Right? We publicly call each other out everywhere. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, church. There's no place where we're not always yelling at everybody about how wrong everyone is. Right? This is the complete opposite culture of mercy. Pope Corliss VI, the great patriarch, he was called a sorcerer. Right? They, 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 they accused him of witchcraft with his miracles. And I mean even from within the church. I'm not talking about from the outside. They called him a fraud. They called him a liar. And he never exposed. Actually, when one group of people were publishing against him, the president who by that time liked him ordered them to be shut down. The Pope called the president and asked them to reopen their press and said, Haram da'akram ma'ishum. This is their bread and butter. Right? Don't take that away from them. I'm okay. Right? Like this is, this is a different kind of living. By showing mercy, we emulate Him, our God, and are assured of our own mercy on the day of death. You won't be afraid. Right? Because like, 
after all these things that I just keep letting go, letting go, letting go, do you think God's going to hold against you the things that you did? He's not. He said so. Blessed are those who show mercy. They shall obtain mercy. The third is enmity, which is connected to both of the above. But this is not just about your judgment. It's not just about your mercy. It's about your internal lack of peace and sometimes external towards another person. Right? It's not just the thoughts. And that usually involves carrying a grudge or fighting for one's rights. But if I have enmity with my neighbor, if I'm not at peace with my neighbor, if I'm holding something against my neighbor, and everyone is my neighbor, then I don't love God, and I should be afraid. Because God said this, no one can say that you love God and not love your neighbor. Right? As St. John says in his epistle, how can you claim to love God who you can't even see when you don't even love your neighbor who you can see? Right? If I have enmity, I'm not acting as a child of God. Think about if someone insults someone that you love very much. Would you feel at peace towards them? Now understand that that's how God views everybody. They're all his kids. He loves every single one of us very much. So when I'm attacking his kids, I'm attacking him. If I'm going to be upset that somebody attacks my mom, well, God is upset when I attack his his mother, his brother, his sister. He says, because all of those who do my will are my mother, father, brother, and sister. Right? We are united through him as family. And to have enmity is to even feel like you have rights, which in the language of gospel, you don't. Right? If I feel that somebody owes me something, I'm not speaking the language of the gospel. Because the gospel says, you don't have anything that's yours. Give anything that anybody asks. They want your coat, let them. They want your time, let them. They need your laughter, give it. They need your peace, give it. They need your visit, visit. Right? This is what the gospel says. It doesn't say, right? right? It just says, whatever they want, let them have it. So to have enmity is to believe that I'm owed. I'm owed dignity, I'm owed respect, I'm owed time. I'm not owed anything. I'm supposed to offer it. And if I love something so much, whether it's my opinion, my ego, my money, my wealth, my house, that I'm willing to be at enmity with somebody, it means that I view myself as worthy of that thing. Right? Otherwise, I wouldn't be holding myself over that. It's beautiful to see the, the saints again who, for example, St. Paul the Anchorite, the, the first solitary. His reason for going to the desert was exactly that. His reason for the desert was actually that he had a family member who died, and him and his uncle were having a lawsuit over the inheritance, a very classic Egyptian problem. But their fight was, I want my rights, I want my money, this is my inheritance. It wasn't, St. Paul didn't wake up one morning and be like, I love God so much, and I want to spend the rest of my life with him. It was, on his way to the court to have the lawsuit, he saw a funeral procession. And realized, everybody dies. That rich man died, and there's no money in his casket. He's just dead. Right? And that was his his wake-up call. It all comes down to the same things. Life is a series of choices. 
It's a free will offering. And another synonym for choosing is loving. And that's why life is only about loving. The gospel defines love for us. And if we live towards the gospel, we will not fear our death. Because we've already always loved rightness. We've always loved correctly. And the loving was of God and neighbor. It's feeding the hungry, visiting the sick, visiting the imprisoned. It's not returning evil for evil. It's blessing instead of cursing. It's giving rather than taking. It's a pursuit of truth. If we don't live that way, we have every reason to fear our day. We have every reason to be scared of that moment if we're not living in that way. But if we do live that way, then what you don't realize is that you've already learned to die before dying, and yet you live more abundantly. Because now nothing material has sway over for you. The things that die are already dead to you. It already means nothing. And the kingdom for you begins here rather than after you die. We've died to ourselves but are raised before God and our death that we fear so much becomes nothing but a moment of transition. And we'll hear him say, Come, beloved of my Father, rest and inherit the place that I prepared for you. For you are my beloved and I am yours. There's a hermit that I know, I'll, I'll end very quickly. He was living in a, in a cave for 20 years and never left the monastery. And one time when I was visiting him when I was in college, I noticed that he had a, a paper that he'd always pull out. And on his little work rock, um, he also had a piece of paper and I asked him, Abuna, what's, like, what you have written? And he just said just one word, and moat, death. Is like that whenever I have a stray thought, whenever I get distracted from what's right, whenever I find myself going wonky, I just read it and remember. Right? It's his way of bringing it back. Maybe as an exercise for this new year, is to somberly, not fearfully, and it's not um, morbid, to put as a practice of, of, a, of a regular cycle, like, let me remember that I'm going to die. Right? Just to bring me back in. To bring me back in and say, am I at peace with my neighbor? Am I doing something that's going to make me afraid? Am I at peace with my family? Am I at peace with, with my workers? Where am I? Am I at peace with God? If we do this, it will bring us all to This is actually the instruction of the best saint, St. Anthony, who said, let us put God before our eyes continually. Remember death and Christ our Redeemer. I'll say it in modern English. Have the goal in front of you, eternal life, your unity with God, and choose it always, he says. Don't choose anything that goes against that goal so that you can obtain it. Make the decisions that match your goal. For us, that goal is salvation, unity with God, renewal, restoration. If I want to be healthy, I can't choose disease. But if I actively and consciously every day think about that goal and review it, I will inevitably do less negative behavior. And I will be confident in that day where I stand before him, where I can inherit the place that he has prepared for us to live with him in his kingdom, both here, now, and in the age to come, to our God be glory, now and always, and unto